Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. We've covered the, the John O'Keefe homicide and, of course, Karen Reed. And we're going to discuss that tonight, and we have uh, a, a special guest tonight, and I'll introduce her later on. But one of the things that we want to all realize in cases like these, the most important thing to follow is the evidence and the logical course of the evidence and not to get thrown off by hysteria and not to get thrown off by things that perhaps aren't true. And we understand that this case has been questioned by many people. In fact, they've brought the FBI in. And, you know, I say to that, good, good. Let's make sure that these allegations against law enforcement are not true. And to tell you the truth, I think they're probably not. But let's bring the FBI in. And I'm sure the district attorney doesn't like it. But you know something? When you have a heavy case like this and lives are at stake, I think it's a good idea to bring in the FBI when there is this specter of impartiality. And the FBI can make sure through their investigation. And if people aren't satisfied with their investigation, then guess what? They're not going to be satisfied with anything. So folks, hang on to your hats. You're about to enter the police off the cuff zone. So we'll see you in a minute or two. There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped in Camden Ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Joining me tonight to make sense of this, if there, that's a possibility, or at least to present our perspective, our point of view on this from a police perspective. Joining me tonight is retired NYPD Sergeant, Professor of Criminal Justice at Albertus Magnus College in Connecticut, law degree, and just all around good guy. We'll call him Professor Mike Geary. We sometimes we call him Father Mike Geary. He's so priestly. Welcome to the show tonight, Mike. Billy, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Good to see you. It's always a pleasure. And we have a special treat tonight. Um, we have retired FBI agent and a consultant to the, actually a contributor to News Nation, and she's also on lots of other channels. Welcome to the show, Jennifer Koffendoffer. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You know, Jennifer, I, I always notice Cuomo says, calls you Daffer. I'm like, uh, where did he get that from? Is that what you taught him? Or I think I'll pronounce it my own way. <laughs> okay, so I have to tell you, that's actually how it's pronounced is Daffer. But so many people say Doffer that it's just kind of stuck. And uh, he might be the only one that actually says it right. But I could care less what everyone calls me. As long as it's well, not a real bad uh, name. You accept you accept the incorrect pronunciations. Absolutely. All right, great. So th this case obviously has been it's almost two years, January 29th, 2022. 
So it's coming on two years and it's going to go to trial. Um, there's been so much emotion in this case. And, and, and as I said, what we always want to do in a case like this is to, is to follow, to follow the evidence. And, and there's Karen Reed. And of course, John O'Keefe, John O'Keefe, by everyone's estimation, was a, a great police officer. And, and not just that, an outstanding human being. You can't uh, find anyone. I haven't read anything that said he's nothing but, was nothing but a great guy. So just to give a little background to the folks that may be just learning about this case, and this is according to CNN. In the pre-dawn hours of January 29, 2022, a man was found dead in a blizzard outside a house in suburban Boston. He was wearing two shirts, blue jeans, socks, and one black Nike sneaker. On the blanket of snow near his body were shards of glass and splotches of blood. His name was John O'Keefe, and he was a Boston police officer. O'Keefe and his girlfriend of two years, Karen Reed, had been on a bar crawl earlier that night. Actually, they were at, they were at two bars. A bar crawl sounds like that you were, uh, at, you know, multiple, multiple. They were it was actually two bars. C.F. <laughs> McCarthy's and... Um, the other one was uh, the name waterfall. Was waterfall ball, right? The waterfall ball. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, about six hours later, O'Keefe's body was spotted in the front yard of the house, covered in snow. But what happened during those six hours had sharply divided Canton, a town of twenty-four thousand people, about fifteen miles southwest of Boston. Residents of the town and neighboring suburbs have spent months debating two potential scenarios. Was O'Keefe beaten inside the house and tossed outside to die in the snow? Or did his girlfriend fatally strike him with her car? Uh, local prosecutors have made their position clear, charging Reed with second-degree murder, vehicular manslaughter, while intoxicated, and leaving the scene of a collision. She has, she has pleaded not guilty, and a trial is set for March. So... That's the, the, the brief synopsis of what occurred. One of the things that we all, that's indisputable, is both Reed and Officer John O'Keefe were drinking quite heavily. Uh, they were probably both qualified as intoxicated. And I've read a, uh, something where they said Karen Reed's blood alcohol level was anywhere between 0.13 and 0.293, which is... That's pretty damn intoxicated. Uh, so that that's there's no question about that. And so knowing a little bit about alcohol, uh, we don't all um, react the same way. We don't respond the same way. Um, we don't see things the same way when we're intoxicated. Uh, Jennifer, your thoughts about this? Yeah, no, absolutely. They took her blood alcohol and it was somewhere between 0.07 and 0.08. And that was after nine o'clock in the morning. And that is where, uh, you know, the doctors surmised that her blood al alcohol level was uh, the figures that you previously named. Um, I think it's very interesting because initially when she first reached out to uh, Jen McCabe, she actually says she doesn't even remember going to 34 Fairview, you know, at all. And then later, you know, the story changes over and over. And I think part of that might be attributed to the alcohol consumption and her lack of knowledge and memory the next morning. Look, there's no doubt that you can have a, a blackout from alcohol and, and totally not 
remember things. Uh, Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, Billy, that's one of the issues for her is that uh, she made statements to people. She suggested things. And then later on, as she sobered up after she felt had fallen asleep for a few hours, sobered up, went back and started doing a search. Um, she still was suffering the effects of the alcohol, but she was a lot less impaired. And perhaps she was in a little bit, uh, had a little bit more control of her faculties. But um, yeah, there it is. You've, you've seen this as a police officer. I've seen this as a police officer. People can't even remember what they did. They're arrested. They're in central booking and they don't really have any recollection of what they did. And you, you tell them and they're going to deny it. And uh, it's a shame, but uh, you know, it's, there's this huge hole of a few hours where um, she doesn't really have anything constructive to add to accurately portray what actually happened. No, absolutely. And I want to read also what CNN says. This is what they said Karen Reed says happened that night. Uh, in court documents and the media interviews, she said that she and O'Keefe went to two Canton bars that night. They mingled with friends, drinking beers and vodka sodas before going to, to the home on Fairview Road. Reed said she dropped off O'Keefe outside the house, then returned to his place because she wasn't feeling well. She called and texted him throughout the night, she said, but there was no response. About 4.30 a.m., Reed woke up screaming when she realized O'Keefe had not come home, court documents said. She called two female friends, including Jennifer McCabe, who had been drinking with her that night. Together, the three women drove through the streets of Canton in near whiteout conditions, looking for O'Keefe and calling his name. As the three women approached Fairview Road, Reed said she caught a glimpse of O'Keefe lying on his back in the yard. McKeefe told authorities, excuse me, McCabe told authorities that Reed jumped out of the car in a panic and performed CPR on him, but he was not responsive. The women called 911. It was so dark, officers who responded to the scene said they needed to use a spotlight attached to a police cruiser to find the women. Uh, a medical examiner later determined that O'Keefe suffered multiple skull fractures consistent with blunt force trauma that led to bleeding in the brain. He also had two swollen black eyes, several abrasion on, abrasions on his right arm, as well as blood, blood around his nose and mouth. Hypothermia was a contributing factor in his death according to the autopsy. Reed and her legal team, which includes attorneys Alan Jackson and David Yanetti, have said she's been framed to protect the real killers. We know who did it. We know and we know who spearheaded this cover-up. You all know, Reed told reporters after a court hearing in September, I tried to save his life. I tried to save his life at six in the morning. I was covered in his blood. I was the only one trying to save his life. Now, the most important thing evidentiary-wise, Jennifer, right now is the defense is coming up with this uh, theory that he was inside the house and he took a beating outside the, in, inside the house and they dumped his body in, in the front of the house into the street. That in itself is almost the entire case because that's their defense. And if he, it's, if it can be proven that he never ever made it into that house, then what kind of case do they have, Jennifer? Well, uh, they don't have a case uh, because the evidence does show he never made it into that house. First of all, the statements of Karen Reed, particularly early on and numerous occasions where she said she dropped him there. And uh, she didn't see him go in the house. She later 
uh, changes that and says she goes into the he goes into the house. So there's one set of sort of muddled uh, uh, statements. Then there is the evidence that are from the ways and ways. Uh, you know, they had their ways going when they went there. And um, the issue is when you look at the information that supposedly he took steps and you know was in that house. The problem is it was before he even arrived there. So there's, uh, it's very incongruent um, to say in terms of the information we have from the GPS that he was ever in that house. And then you add on top of that, the fact that the glass he had held in his hand is actually fragments are embedded in the bumper you know, or the, um, uh, the back bumper part of his quarter panel, I should say, of his vehicle. You have the taillight. Uh, small uh, fragments that are in his clothing. And you have the tail light that is actually in the snow where his body is actually also where his phone was below him. So there's just no evidence that he was ever in that house or drug out of that house. And there's no DNA on his face, on his knuckles, on his body from any of these 10 individuals that supposedly beat the tar out of him. You know, how many people were actually inside the house? So uh, let me start with uh, Jen McCabe, Matt McCabe, Brian Albert, his wife, Nicole Albert, Brian Jr. Albert, which is the whole reason they were there. It was a birthday celebration for him. Um, Caitlin Albert, the daughter, Brian Higgins, who was an ATF agent who was also there during this event, uh, Sarah, Julie, and Ryan, uh, who were friends of, and I won't get into last names, but who were also friends of, of Brian. And Colin was there early, but he had to get home because of a curfew. So he departed the house, uh, which is also will be an evidence from not only text messages about the per to the person coming to pick him up, but the uh, testimony of the person who picked him up brought him to his parents' house and then, of course, his parents and his GPS. So all of that added together. Colin Albert wasn't even there at uh, 24 after the hour when they arrived, which is going to be a problem. You know, Jen, one side. of the things, and I see a lot of people in the chat talking about, and I discussed this a little bit with uh, Professor Mike before we went on the air, and is that's the Apple Watch that allegedly or shows him walking up uh, whatever it was, three flights of stairs. Uh, and again, I am not an expert on Apple Watches and I'm mm -hmm. certainly not an expert on cell phones, but I, I know that the GPS in a cell phone is pretty pretty damn accurate. In fact, we, when I was on the NYPD, we used to have a unit called TARU, Technical Assistance Response Unit, and they could go right to an apartment and place the phone right in the specific apartment using this device called Triggerfish. I'm sure um, mm -hmm. it's much more, um, you know, up to date now. That was 12 years ago. I'm sure, you know, technology has moved even further and the technology from placing the phone where it actually was. So his, if the phone was underneath his body, I mean, isn't it going to show that? 
Yeah, and that's the trouble. It does. The The problem is, is there's three pieces of information here. We have the Apple Watch information. We have the GPS information from the phone. And then we also have the Waze information on that app. And the issue is that the Apple Watch information timing wise shows this, you know, ascending and descending stairs and all these steps as occurring before he even arrives to the house, according to the ways and the GPS. So there's a fundamental gap between what Apple is saying and what the other instrumentation is saying. And if I've done just very little review, but some review about the Apple, uh, watch information because that was i've retired about seven years ago and you know that was something that just didn't come into play in the cases i was on but they are apparently uh wrong often uh in terms of their data whereas the gps data and the Waze data is much more accurate you know jennifer and, and mike i'm gonna let you uh join in here you know the court of public opinion is never the court that makes decisions you know the court that makes decisions is the, the Supreme Court, the criminal court that the case gets tried in. And that's where both the prosecution and the defense will have their experts uh, dissecting all of this information. And if there are errors and if there are, are things that the police did wrong and the prosecution did wrong, that, that'll do what's called, and I love my the acronym, BARD, beyond a reasonable doubt. They have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And if there are those mistakes and if there are those glaring errors and if the evidence points to the fact that Karen Reed in fact did not do this, then guess what? She'll be found not guilty. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, Billy, she's got excellent counsel and um, they're doing a bang up job. They're doing the best they can for her, given the fact that, uh, you know, as, as um, you know, Ms. Koffendorfer said, yeah, there's a lot of issues with some of the timing of, of what her statements were, <clears throat> where she was, what she was doing, um, state retracting statements later on, things like that. Uh, and with the Apple Watch and uh, the, the navigation in, in the phone, it really, you know, I always tell my students whenever we analyze cases and we, we talk about case, you know, famous cases from the past and we talk about cases that are contemporary. And I always say to them, you know, always think, what is the most logical thing that probably happened? The most logical thing that, you know, probably will happen is probably what actually did happen. It's nothing like, you know, Martians are going to come down and uh, and a spaceship. No, nothing. You don't have to go outside the realm of really what's pretty probable, you know, that you can see in everyday life. Use your common sense. What seems to be, given the set of facts, most likely scenario that happened in a homicide case or, you know, that sort of thing. And when we talk about these things, um, you say, okay, what is the most likely common sense thing? And her, you know, uh, narrative doesn't really quite fit at all with some of the facts that we know. Uh, the average common law, common person could say, based just on a few facts, we could kind of see where what might have happened despite what somebody's saying about a conspiracy of 10 or 11 people men and women together beating up someone and then having them out in the snow to die 
does that make sense? You know, or is it something else that may make sense? So she's climbing a very steep uphill and she's got amazing amount of public opinion on her, on her side for it. It, it really is disturbing, but, um, you know, the pro the prosecutor is going to have a jury of 12 people and she's going to have a jury of 12 people and they're going to pick them out and they will be in a courtroom and they will hear without emotion and without crazy stuff from, you know, the media, people interjecting themselves, what actually happened. And hopefully they'll use their common sense and not go down rabbit holes and make up their minds to what really occurred. You, you, Mike, very well said. I'm, I'm going to play a little bit of the defense uh, uh, presenting some of their case in a hearing. Austin police officer John O'Keefe after a night of heavy drinking. Prosecutors claim Reed backed her car into O'Keefe during a snowstorm and left him to die. But Reed's defense says the Commonwealth has it all wrong. With each new piece of evidence that comes in, we're more and more convinced uh, of my client's innocence. O'Keefe's snow-covered body was found outside the home of another officer in Canton, Massachusetts. According to the prosecution's statement of the case, the couple was invited to the house after the bars in downtown Canton closed. Witnesses told investigators they last saw the couple at the Waterfall Bar and Grill. Others said they saw a black SUV resembling Reed's parked outside the house, but never saw O'Keefe come inside. Reed told investigators that she dropped him off at the after party and never heard from him again. She went home to take care of the kids and then she called him 49 times. Where are you? Why aren't you back? She was the one to go back to that uh, residence to look for him. She was the one to find him. She was the one to uh, try and keep him warm and give him CPR and try and revive him. But Norfolk County prosecutors question those actions. They claim voicemails and text messages detail strains in the relationship and the victim's desire to end their relationship, including a voicemail from the night he died in which Reed allegedly told O'Keefe that she hated him. Also, O'Keefe's niece and nephew who lived with him allegedly told police that the couple fought constantly about the relationship and breaking up before his death. Prosecutors point to a broken taillight on Reed's SUV, pieces of which were allegedly found near O'Keefe's body to suggest she ran her car into him. A forensic pathologist opined that significant blunt force trauma injuries occurred prior to Mr. O'Keefe becoming hypothermic. Cuts and bruises were found on O'Keefe's head and arm. Somebody being hit by a car, I would submit, does not look like they had been punched out by Mike Tyson. You know, I would just like to mm. make a comment to that. <laughs> this boy doesn't know what he's talking about. If, he, if he's never look, I've seen someone that choked on a piece of meat once. And as you talk about petechial hemorrhages, he had two black eyes the next day. So blunt force trauma that causes a brain injury will absolutely cause black eyes and will cause trauma to all your, your, your blood vessels in your eyes. So I don't know what this attorney is talking about. He should get a little bit more experience if he's going to talk about physical injuries. But having said that, let's get to 
the Lexus, the, the vehicle she was driving. Now, that has a very sophisticated computer system in it. And won't the computer system in it show that she was going in reverse at a certain speed at a certain time? I don't know if it has, well, the, the backup camera doesn't record, but won't it show that? And then that can, can show that she did, in fact, hit someone at a certain location at a certain time. Jennifer, absolutely. that was <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's going to show uh, the speed. It's going to show any impacts. And really, I think this is going to be the uh, smoking black box, if you will, um, of the case. I, I think that uh, the Commonwealth, we haven't seen a lot of evidence regarding all that that's going to show, uh, but I think it's going to be very damning. You know, Jennifer, I want to show something, and obviously I want to show this because this is fair, and this disturbed me a bit too. And uh, these injuries to his right arm, and of the, the, the uh, defense, of course, says that this proves he was inside that house. I think they had a, uh, a dog, a German Shepherd, perhaps. And this shows that the dog attacked him. Those clearly are not blunt force trauma injuries. Those are the marks of a, uh, a dog uh, attacking uh, John O'Keefe. Your, your thoughts? Well, there's a few issues here. First of all, a medical examiner has examined the actual body of John O'Keefe. And not only one, but a secondary one. And they have determined that it was caused by a blunt object, not that it was from teeth or, and as you can see, there's no, this dog, if it would have been a dog, doesn't have any teeth on the other side. Uh, or if, if they're saying this is scratches. But, but the big issue is going to be is they sent, uh, you know, the information they had, the material they had to have it analyzed for non-human DNA. And that, my understanding, has come back negative. So this argument is going to not hold any water. And again, you're looking at a photo that was actually leaked to the press. And, uh, you know, people are making medical analysis from a photo and, and they're just mistaken. Well, the other the other uh, thing is, of course, the broken taillight, and this is causing uh, huge, uh, you know, huge arguments over was it at the scene where he was? Was the broken taillight there? How about the broken glass that he was carrying out of out of the bar? Was that on the scene also? Yes, that was on the scene also, and there were actually uh, some fragments, if you will, that were in the quarter panel. And that's a lot to get past uh, that. And then, as you mentioned, the tail light that's on scene there. Um, there was that footage from about 5.08 in the morning, I believe, if I recall correctly, where Karen goes to Jen McCabe's house. And in that footage, she bumps barely the vehicle of John O'Keefe. But you can see there that the snow everything on John O'Keefe's car is intact, that there's no change uh, to the taillight, that there's no fragments, there's nothing that broke there on scene. And so um, it is believed, of course, that it happened when she hit John O'Keefe. Right. I, I want to um, 
I want to play that that video just so uh, no one's going to accuse of, us of hiding anything here. Um, hang on, I'll, let me just find the video. But um, this was, of course, later. I believe later in the in the in the early morning hours, and it, folks had said that this shows that. Um, let me see if I can get it up on the screen. This shows that the the um, tail light was intact. Let's see. So she's pulling out in the black SUV. And that's the victim's SUV parked. And the defense says that she makes contact, hits the victim's SUV right there, yeah. damaging that back right passenger side taillight. And they also claim you can see, you know, the victim's SUV move, indicating that there was a collision. And then as she pulls away, they say that you can tell there's missing parts of the taillight. Right. But it would have been missing if if it, if it was a result right. of striking uh, uh, Officer O'Keefe at that time also. Here's a closer look at it. Uh, once again, as we're, we're backing up here, keep your eye and see if you see any movement here from the other car. It's very possible. Yeah, it's, it's very possible. The prosecution doesn't that's, say that's, there's contact. If, if the whole case was, how did the taillight get broken? You've got reasonable doubt right reasonable there. Reasonable doubt, yes. You've got reasonable doubt right there because you, you can't tell, but it's very reasonable to think that at that point you could have broken that taillight. Now, one of the problems is from an evidentiary standpoint is that there's no pieces of the taillight at this location. Mike. Yeah, Billy, that's one of the problems is the, the taillight pieces are at the where the body is and also the, the drink that he had in his hand was broken too. And, um, you know, and I'm thinking from my point of view, as it, if she did a three-point U-turn, which meant she backed up like maybe twice, she may have hit him uh, in his chest and he fell down and she may have backed over him and hit, he hit his head and the defensive like defensive wounds on his, on his arms may have been from his hand going underneath the bumper, hitting metal, getting scratched. It was probably you know, something like I'm getting run over, being conscious of what was going on, not being able to do anything about it. Um, so I remember uh, getting a broken nose. And as you said before earlier, you can get bruising around your eyes. So there's many injuries where you could get bruising around the eyes other than a couple of punches in the face. So um, given what I see from the, uh, the, the, uh, the scene where not, you know, from the testimony that she had, uh, the medical examiner's office, the crime scene information, um, you know, his injuries occurred right there. He's got pieces of, of her, uh, fragments of her uh, SUV taillight on his clothing. He's got his own broken glass there. He's got head injuries. He's probably has some, maybe some chest injuries and he's got arm injuries all indicating, you know, that he was, he was run over. Um, if he was hit, by uh, by punches, numerous punches and kicks and things like that, he would have had a lot more facial trauma than that, than uh, the two black eyes. Black eyes can come from a lot of different things. You know, uh, I wrote down his what his injuries were. Bloody abrasions on O'Keefe's right arm is it, what, what we're seeing right there. Two black eyes, a cut above the right eye, a cut uh, left side of nose, mm -hmm. a two-inch laceration in the back of his head, and multiple skull fractures, bleeding on the brain, and of course hypothermia that contributed uh, contributed to his death. So those are all, all the injuries. Now, 
Jennifer, from the perspective of the pathologist of, from the autopsy, where, what, where, how do they think if he was hit by this SUV, where did it hit him? Well, we haven't seen the reenactment, but the other uh, injuries that we know he did suffer were actually some internal, very significant internal injuries to the stomach and to the pancreas. Um, so those were additional uh, injuries, at least according to uh, the court documents. Um, and of course, we haven't seen the full autopsy. So a lot of it is, is sort of hidden from us, but it would make sense to me that his head or, or something uh, very um, uh, a bone would have had to hit that tail light to cause uh, that fragmentation of that tail light. Okay. Mike, you know, one of the most important things in any homicide investigation, of course, is the interview of right. witnesses. And the witnesses run the gamut in this case. So let's start at the two bars that they went to. I believe it was C.F. McCarthy's. And Waterfall. And the Waterfall. Yeah. So the first bar, C.F. McCarthy's, I think, which they were at earlier in the night, I think that Karen, according to the uh, bartender, had a, six vodka tonics in a very short period of time uh, at that location. And then they left at some point and went to the second bar. I don't know if she did have any drinks at the second bar. Uh, some said she had anywhere from uh, six to nine drinks. I, I, I don't know if that's correct or not. Again, there's not, we don't have, we, as we say all the time on this show, we don't have access to the homicide case folder that will give us accurate information on the interviews. The interviews of the bartenders. Now, look, the bartenders not only, they're interviewed, they, they potentially could be um, plaintiffs in a, excuse me, they could be sued. In sure. a civil matter, uh, because you're not supposed to serve someone once they're intoxicated. And bartenders can actually get arrested for that. So, but they're, they gave statements and they gave statements as to, you know, the times of play. And then, of course, that's backed up with video cameras to see when they actually left those bars. Now, all the other interviews, of course, uh, you mentioned the people inside 34 Fairview, but also... When they get to that scene, uh, and even before that, there's mm -hmm. two females right. that meet Karen Reed. One of them, I think, drove her car to the scene. Mm -hmm. And she immediately pointed out where um, John O'Keefe was, when no, when no one else could see him. And she ran over to him. And at that scene, she made what's called a spontaneous utterance. And that was, I hit him, I hit him, I hit him. Yeah, Billy. She's, uh, Why is that more important than uh, some other type of utterance, Mike? Well, Billy, a spontaneous utterance is always considered reliable under the law and always admissible in court, either to, you know, em em exculpate someone or impl implicate someone in a crime. And someone suggesting, "Oh my God, I may have done something." And in this case here, um, I, I, I I see three areas where, around five o'clock in the morning. After after she woke up, she woke up sometime after like four thirty in the morning, um, uh, and uh, the, of the 29th, and she uh, immediately uh, called someone. Uh, she called a friend, and she stated, uh, and this friend testified at the uh, at the grand jury 
I wonder if he's dead. Maybe he got hit by a snowplow, which is kind of a strange thing to, to suggest to somebody when you're, when you're looking for your boyfriend, you just think maybe he fell asleep somewhere and you're really mad at him. Why would you suggest that he was dead and B, he was hit by an object like a snowplow? Uh, that happened around five o'clock in the morning at around 5.30 when, um, when, when um, McCabe at, who's and another girl helped her look for um, uh, O'Keefe she showed them apparently a broken taillight in the car. And apparently, according to the testimony, the grand jury, uh, the McCabe said that Reed said to her, could I have hit him? And she showed him the taillight thinking, and now she's sobering up at this point. Remember it's been hours. She slept, she's awake now. And she's getting to the point where she's maybe realizing, holy smokes. And then at, uh, and after they, she runs and she finds the body uh, when they drove by the house on Fairview. Um, no one else apparently testified that they could actually see a body or anything like lying in the snow, except, you know, Reed herself said, that's him. And they couldn't even see that what she was pointing at. And then later on, when the officer came, first responding officer, he had to use, uh, uh, you know, the searchlight on the side of the car to even see where the, where the ladies were. Um, and then the third statement that she makes spontaneously, she, as she was in shock, uh, the fire department paramedics were there and she said several times, I hit him, I hit him. Now these are said spontaneously. These are said without uh, you know preparation, without speaking to an attorney. These are said spontaneously and we believe that under the law, spontaneous, unguarded statements, those statements that you say uh, before you're even thinking about what you're saying are the most reliable because they give away your true character and truly what you're thinking. So these are damning bits of statements that she made on three occasions uh, in that morning about what may have happened to him. It shows a, a consciousness of guilt. She's coming around to this. Now, remember, this is before she spoke to an attorney. This is she's coming around realizing, oh, my God, what have I done? And that's where I think uh, is is going to is very damning evidence against her. Besides the taillight, as Jennifer said, um, I, I think this is amazingly uh, as ma amazing information that the jury's going to hear. Besides the uh, the information we're talking about in regards to interviewing witnesses, how about the, the physical evidence in, in the way of uh, the broken taillight on the scene? Uh, and also, Jennifer, you mentioned the glass that he had had in his hand. And there were also, uh, I believe, microscopic particles of the glass and of the taillight in his shirt, according to the medical examiner's office. That's pretty powerful evidence. And, and you know, for the people that say the police planted that there, they planted the microscopic evidence too. I mean, how are they that smart <laughs> to do that if they were planting that? I would like to know that. Right. I mean, the problem is it's just it it doesn't add up, Bill. And by the way, I want to say, Professor, what a great summation of all of those uh, statements that were made. I couldn't have said it better. It just you did such a good job of, of setting out these spontaneous utterances to 
Terry to Jen McCabe, and then at the scene to the um, EMS worker. And um, but back to your question, Bill, regarding that tail light and the glass, it's just going to be very difficult. Now, what uh, the individuals that are looking at this and saying, listen, there's corruption, there's issues. Uh, the individuals that were on scene, they did not wait for the um, evidence response team, which I believe they call their uh, SRT, I think is the acronym they use. Um, they did not wait for them and they started collecting some evidence. They used some solo cups, uh, they used a, um, a, a leaf blower, I think, to try to clear some snow, right? There's at least six inches of snow by this point. As you said, this is a blizzard. It's a whiteout situation. And those were mistakes. But those aren't insurmountable mistakes. Those are more mistakes of, of not handling the scene right, um, not being properly trained on that collection. They should have just waited for the ERT to come and properly process the scene. Um, but to me, they're not insurmountable in terms of their collection. Absolutely not. Uh, let me just, folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. If you want to contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and we also have a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels. Uh, we appreciate all our subs, our friends, and our fans on the show that have made this show uh, a success over the past few years. Yeah, I, I think it's just uh, so powerful um, when you also interview people that have no axe to grind in the case. For example... The EMS guy, he has nothing. He has no, you know, if, if people are claiming this is a police fix, he pulls up to the scene and hears these statements. No one told him what to say. No one's coaching him what to say. And that's one of the most important things. And invest the bartenders, all people that aren't involved in this case at all, that are witnesses. And that's what comes together when there is a trial. You know, I see a lot of people even in the chat that just, you know, they're saying, oh, this is wrong and that is wrong. No, what you've been hearing is wrong. Uh, a lot of that, what goes out there as fact is not fact. It's innuendo and, and you know, put together with, with, with a slant. And you could say the same thing about the police evidence. However, the police are the people that are putting this case together. And there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that John O'Keefe ever entered that house. And there's even less evidence that anyone had a fight with him in that house. And there's no evidence that he was dumped out there by the people that beat him up in the house. So this is all absolutely ridiculous. But it's taken on a life of its own by just, you know, really, it, it, it's, it's scary that it's taken on a life of its own. Let me play a little more of the attorney here. It's loading up. I thought he'd be ready to go, but apparently not. <laughs> you know, Billy, one of the things that is that makes a great defense attorney is offering people 
and he's going to do he's doing out in public oh, Victor but, uh, looked like he had been punched out by mike tyson reed's lawyer david yonetti says his client is not responsible for o'keefe's injuries i believe that the the evidence shows that she didn't hit him um i've said in the past that his injuries are not consistent with being hit by a vehicle and by the way the lexus taillight breaking coming in contact with a human being and not a hard surface makes no sense to me i think it's going to make no sense to a jury if not reed who her lawyer says that there's a lot they still don't know this is a case where uh, the, the, the homeowner, being a Boston police officer, was treated differently than he would have been if he were you or me. A lot to talk about. Thankfully, Marie Pereira is still with me. All right. First of all, the public attention on this case, because it seems like you have two sides adamant. Number one, that Karen Reed killed her boyfriend. No question about it. And number two, no, not. She didn't. It's a cover up. So, you know, this is all uh, what's go been out there, that this is a cover-up, that, uh, that the police uh, had an axe to grind in this case, that he was, he was beaten, that he was beaten uh, to the, the point he was found outside the house, you know, in the house, that they planted the glass, they planted the broken taillight. Uh, I mean, where did, really, where does that come from? I mean, that's... First of all, who made that up that this has taken on a life of its own? Mike. Yeah, Billy, the, uh, I'm just looking at the, the video of the attorney, uh, defense attorney, and all good defense attorneys, um, especially someone who's got the resources this gentleman has. This isn't a public defender's office. And, you know, you, the guy's got, you know, a stack of, of cases, you know, uh, six feet tall. Um, he's doing a great job. He might it might be annoying when you see these sorts of things, but what he's doing is he's offering the public and he's going to try to do this again during the trial, offering them an alternative scenario that they could believe. Mm -hmm. And if you just get remember, instead of the, the prosecutor has to convince 12 people beyond a reasonable doubt on his theory. And here the defense only really has to uh, convince one person to get a hung jury. And so he's going to offer the scenario, it's going to be all a cover-up. Um, they planted everything. Um, you know, you can't believe what you hear or, or what the, uh, anybody said in the trial, what anybody had previously said in the uh, grand jury. Um, the forensic evidence is really um, not conclusive whatsoever. It's very equivocal. You could read into it. The idea that, you know, uh, 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 the SUV's taillight, hit a human body and that's not hard and wouldn't break, you know, uh, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, um, I wonder how much, you know, training he has had in accident reconstruction and uh, uh, none, none, yeah. obviously, because that was yeah. the stupidest statement I've ever heard in my yeah. life. Yeah. So um, it's, uh, that's what he's doing. He's doing a great job. And I think you get some people that it just appeals to them because it's an emotional appeal and um, if you have any sort of uh, distrust of the police, you may kind of go along with it to say, yeah, you can't you can't trust any of the police. They're all in on it. And you make these broad, general statements and it just goes. It just has a life of its own. It's very difficult. Absolutely. I want to play a little bit of court TV uh, here. Again, it's loading up. 
Usually, usually it just jumps right in, but uh, for the, whatever reason tonight, it's and there we go. About 15 minutes later, they arrive at the Waterfall Bar and Grill, also in Canton. Um, this is interesting because they're hanging out in Canton. He's a Boston police officer, but where all this is happening, it's not Boston, and it's not a case that was investigated by officers that work with uh, John O'Keefe. No, this isn't a, this is your suburbs outside of it. But I do know that up in this community, the law enforcement group is not a huge widespread thing. I mean, they have a lot of officers up there, but you know how small this, you know, law enforcement can be and everybody kind of does know everybody. I can't wrap my head around the fact that a bunch of police officers were around and allowed someone who may or may not have been absolutely hammered get behind the wheel of a car that still sticks out to me as being an issue it also calls into question for me whether or not karen reed is a reliable narrator of her own story that night assuming she was intoxicated yeah like how do you how intoxicated was she how does what does she remember what does she not remember um but again the the charges here are that she did it intentionally that this was this was no accident 12:14 a.m. John O'Keefe texts Jennifer McCabe where to Jennifer replies with the address of her brother's house on Fairview Road which is where this so-called after party is going to take place 12:31 a.m. Jennifer McCabe texts John O'Keefe hello when he when she sees when he sees what she believes is Karen Reed's black SUV at the residence this is interesting. So Jennifer McCabe, who's inside the house, I guess perhaps or apparently sees Karen Reed and John O'Keefe, at least the car, arrive in front of this home. That's exactly right. And another text that comes through around this time from Jennifer McCabe is basically giving them directions as to where in the driveway to park. I think it's something along the lines of, you know, pull pull behind my car or pull behind this vehicle. So Presumably, the people in the house see that they're there in the driveway looking to park, and the people in the car presumably know that this is the house that they're going to because they were directed where to park. This moment in the timeline is where everything goes off the rails for me, Vinny, because the people in the house say that he never came inside to this party. They never saw him. And then you have Karen Reed saying he got out of the car, went in the house, never came back and never answered her phone calls. I can't believe that no one went outside ever to see where he was. If you see me pull up in outside of your house and you're expecting me to come inside and all of a sudden I disappear and my car disappears, wouldn't you be concerned? And on the same token, if you and I are driving to a party and you get out of the car to go inside and you don't answer my phone calls or come back to the car, I'm gonna get concerned. It didn't seem like anyone was concerned until tomorrow. Till no, until the next day. And so let's get to 12.40 a.m., Jennifer McCabe texts John O'Keefe, pull up behind me, and says she then saw the black SUV move from its initial place to the left side of the property. This is, this is very specific. So the left side of the property, I believe, is where the body was found, right. correct? So that, that also is putting her SUV at that location, witnesses. I know we can't. We can't believe witnesses. We have to believe uh, bloggers, I think. you know. But there's, there's some witnesses saying that the vehicle was there and that's where his body was found. 
Now, Jennifer, people keep referring in the chat to this plow uh, operator. Did Lucky. he see anything? Or he said he saw nothing, and that's, you know. Yeah, Lucky Lofgren. So um, this is the situation, right? Everybody who left that home, and they left at varying times throughout the night. I think the first one to leave was the ATF agent who left at about 1.30, and then they all started kind of leaving a bit after that. And no one sees um, John O'Keefe laying at this far end of the left side of the house. And if you look at the picture, though, of that house, and, and I've posted some that are of that morning, um, it is, it's pretty big distance. Now, remember, everyone else was up in that driveway on the far right side. Mm -hmm. Now, Jennifer, she, did, didn't they say it was between the flagpole and the fire hydrant? That's where his body was laying? It was actually in that yard about 12 feet, they said, uh, up into the uh, grass, if you will. Now, it, there's a big question mark as to whether when they said that, because it's in the court documents, whether they mean from their car, 12 feet, or from the curb. But it's up in there, but certainly nothing you would see. There's no lights. It's snowing. Uh there's there. Listen, these guys have all been drinking all night <laughs> and it's freezing outside. I think it was like 18 degrees or something like that. It was cold. And I could tell you, uh, most people in those conditions, they're just beelining to their car and going to get out of there. I, I don't think we can really detract from what the, you know, the facts are with everybody drinking and everybody being intoxicated, how that lent itself to some of the actions and inactions we saw in the situation. Yeah, I guess most of the people that watch my show just they don't drink. They, uh, you know, they they work out and play tennis and stuff like that. I don't think that they're, they're big drinkers, but I think you know the time frame to this is, is pretty important. And it seems like whatever happened to John O'Keefe happened between uh, twelve twenty and twelve forty hours, according uh, to the witnesses. But then he's not found for a long time, as which made hypothermia part of uh, the reason uh, the cause of his death mike yeah billy the, he had the uh they didn't find him for uh, hours until um you know ms reed went back with her friends and and saw through the snow because snow was still falling uh saw his body um only one of the persons said uh in the grand jury that they may have seen something uh uh about, about between 1.30 and 2, they left the party and said uh, that they saw something in the snow off to the side of the house, but they didn't know what it was. But, of course, they're saying that after they know that the that's where the body was found. But apparently, with, between the snow and the darkness and the distance, as, as, as you know, Jennifer said, everybody's going, if you're looking at the house, everybody's going off to the right to get into their cars in the driveway. And nobody is looking to that corner in the left where it's dark, where between the uh, flagpole and the uh, fire hydrant. And so, uh, yeah, that's exactly, so they play, you can place the body right there at that time. And uh, the hypothermia set in probably rather quickly, but unfortunately with the bleeding on the brain that he suffered with, from skull fractures, uh, you know, even if they had gotten him to a hospital fairly quickly, um, and there was no real, real delay, like there was hours delay before anybody found him. 
that uh, he may have also succumbed to his injuries anyway. And that's the sad part about it, uh, because um, those are def- those are devastating uh, fractures to his skull and bleeding into the brain. Phil, I for- I'm ahead, so sorry. Ahead, so I just forgot to really answer your question. Um, when everybody left, in other words, they didn't see him. And Lucky Lofgren, who says he was driving the plow, right? This is a major blizzard. Um, he was driving the snow plow. He said he specifically recalled sort of looking over there and not seeing any anyone laying there. And he also says he recalls a vehicle being there uh, during one of his passes. And the vehicle, interestingly, that he names is the same type of car that uh, the brother of uh, Brian Albert, who lives in the house, his brother's son was Colin Albert that we talked about earlier, the 17-year-old that was there earlier before everybody arrived and left. But the problem is, he says the car was tan and their car is black. So it's really inconsequential. They want to make a lot of the fact that this vehicle was supposedly parked, according to Lecky, near the area where the body would be as if to obstruct in some way what would have happened. But I think what, you know, from being in law enforcement, we know you could never obstruct parking a car right here a group of people dragging a dead body, and he was a big man, a bloody, dead, injured, dead body across the snow. Of course, there's no marks or anything like that. And then having the brilliant idea, rather than to take him somewhere and and get rid of the body, they're going to throw him right on the front yard of, of the person that's you know, they're accusing of murdering him. And they're going to use a little SUV to park in front that hopefully nobody will see anything. So uh, Lucky says he didn't see a body. So I think a lot of people are saying, you know, nobody saw the body because it wasn't there. But I think nobody saw the body. Probably Lucky didn't see it because he was concentrating on the road, concentrating on his plow. You know, I looked up, you wouldn't believe how many um, mailboxes are hit by snowplow drivers. Unbelievable. <laughs> you know, it's everything seems like that's uh, reasonable or unreasonable. But when you're out somewhere, it's 18 degrees out. It's a blinding snowstorm. Everyone's been drinking. People don't have 20/20 vision at that at that point. And as you said, because the snowplow driver didn't see a body, doesn't mean it wasn't there. He just did not see it. Maybe he didn't look in the right direction. Maybe, again, he was concentrating on what he was doing. But to, to, to use that as just to exclude 100%, that doesn't make uh, any, any, any sense to me. Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in the New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe's a retired NYPD police officer and an excellent defense attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell at 718-514-3855. Email him at joe at jmurray-law.com or go on his website, jmurray-law.com. Not only is Joe Murray a fantastic defense attorney, but he's a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast, and we appreciate everything he's done for us. You know, when we get back, when when we cover this and we talk about this case or other homicide investigations, 
what it always comes back to is the evidence. And that's what is going to be presented to a jury. And I, I acknowledge in this case, there's a lot of doubt that the defense can raise. But when a reasonable jury is presented with evidence that backs up certain facts, then I think that, you know, that is what gets convictions and that and the, the, the doubt is what gets people off. Mike. Yeah, Billy, you know, people are going to, you know, they're not attorneys. They're just average people on a jury. And hopefully you have, a, a, you know, a good jury foreman and uh, everybody's going to use their common sense and not go down rabbit holes and conspiracy theories. Because um, once you do that, you know, the, the defense has done their job. They're going to get at least one person to say, I don't believe any of the police officers. They're all corrupt and that sort of thing. And, you know, to, without actually even realizing, well, they, you have officers from different departments. You have firefighters. You have EMS people. You have all these other people. Are they all in the conspiracy along with the other people who are spouses and and uh, and wives and, and and husbands of these people? They're all in the conspiracy. Or is it more likely than not, you know, that this very simple thing occurred, that they had a fight? They were, you know, she was doing a three point U-turn. Everyone was intoxicated, whether she hit him negligently or she was just so angry, she didn't realize what she was doing. She blacked out. What is the most common sense thing that may have happened using your own common sense judgment about your your experiences in life? And hopefully they'll get away from the emotional stuff and they'll come to whatever the decision they come to. Hopefully they'll do it in a very calm, common sense manner. Absolutely. You know, I think that, you know, this what this could come down to also uh, is, was he ever in the house? And that's 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 the defense. That's the defense that he was in the house and you got beaten up in the house. They threw him out on the that makes no sense whatsoever. But that is the defense. Jennifer. Well, you know, when you don't have an alibi, right, they can't say she was somewhere else. That's out the window. You have to point the finger in another uh, direction as to who could have caused this death, and uh, which is what the professor initially also discussed, and and that's what they're doing. And and they're I want to bring up a couple of things as an example: the EMS worker, uh, the sleuths, uh, online sleuths have found a photo actually where uh, and. Uh, one of the children, uh, Brian Albert, is pictured years ago, by the way, with the EMS worker because it's a small place. I think this was this big beach party, like India party. And interestingly enough, you know, they're trying to say, oh, they were best friends. So that's why the EMS worker is, is painting this picture. Um, so they're able to sort of try to take their narrative and find items that help support it, like in that case. Absolutely. So look, one of the things I, I always like to mention in these cases, of course, is uh, what this case is about. And uh, that's the victim, you know, that's uh, John O'Keefe here in the picture with Karen Reed. By everyone's estimation, uh, a great man, uh, a great police officer, uh, 
a pillar of his community, took in his uh, his sister's kids after she died, and then her husband died three months later. He took in her kids. Now, her kids, which he was being the father to, now don't have a father once again, nor a mother. So this is a, a tragic case in a lot of ways. And uh, I, I always want to mention the, the victim because that's who we in law enforcement, we that work homicides, that's who we work for. We work for the victim. We work for the family and uh, we work for the victim. You know, I noticed there's a lot of people, there's a real a lot of toxic people in the chat tonight. And you know something? I was a New York City police sergeant for 27 years, Manhattan North Homicide <laughs> Squad for 10, one of the most elite homicide units in the country. And I see some of these morons in the chat that can't find their ass with two hands and, and they're, they're making derogatory comments. Well, go back to your, your job at Piggly Wiggly, you know, because it's, it's really pathetic. Uh, I, you know, I try to keep my cool with this, but some of these people really annoy me. You know, these online super sleuths, you know, and they keep mentioning the name of, of, of someone. I won't even mention the guy's name. So um, this is a tragic case, whichever way you, you want to slice it, you know, that it's, it's very tragic. And uh, unfortunately, you know, I think Karen Reed did it, you know, and uh, she's going to go to trial and she can she'll either be found guilty or innocent. Initially, I thought that, you know, this maybe should have been a manslaughter, but we don't know all the evidence. We don't know all the interaction that the district attorney has from text messages, from cell phone calls, from all that other evidence. And they knocked it up. They kicked it up to murder second degree. So potentially, if she is found guilty, she could get 25 years to life. And um, that's a lot different than a manslaughter. And manslaughter is potentially you could get convicted and not go to jail at all. Mike. Yeah, Billy, I think the uh, initially people really did think this may have been a manslaughter case uh, because there's many kinds of uh, case where people uh, engage in DWI and maybe someone's injured or killed. But I think later on, as you get into it and you start to realize some of the uh, interactions in, with within the that couple and uh, the fact that the, the, tail, the camera, the reverse camera was working that night in the car they know it was working they tested it um they they they're now looking at that murder charge i think if you are on that jury and you're a little queasy about saying she intentionally murdered him because there was a fight and she saw him in the back of the car and she just ran him over if you're queasy about that you may go for a manslaughter conviction that may be a compromise uh i think verdict rather than complete acquittal uh, or murder, I think uh, a jury may settle on something like a manslaughter charge because you are you can say it was a tragic accident. Uh, she was reckless, but she didn't mean to kill him. And you may think that, that is justice. And that might be, you know, a Solomonic split of the issue. That's where I'm thinking this is going to go. Absolutely. Jennifer, your, uh, your thoughts. Yeah. You know, how this evolved in terms of her drinking, this incident that happened, how initially it looked like they were going to seek uh, just the manslaughter and that her attorneys seemed to 
sort of go in that direction. And then, of course, she hired outside attorney. There was a lot of money raised, you know, over 200000 And now it's just taken on a life of its own in terms of this um, scenario, or this alternate scenario. I just, I just find the whole thing tragic for the O'Keefe's and their family and for the Alberts, the McCabe's, Higgins, the ATF agent, everyone, even the dog Chloe, everyone who has been accused of this horrible crime without any evidence, that, those are the real victims here. And it's just, um, for me, that's, that's the reason um, I've been so staunch in my advocacy is watching what it's done to those families. Absolutely. Uh, Mike, I think we're, uh, we said all we really need to say on this, yeah. your final thoughts. The final thoughts, just, uh, just what Jennifer Kaufman doctor said, I can't say it any better. The, the, there are people who are being smeared uh, besides um, Mr. O'Keefe, who's passed away and he's considered a great guy. All these other people are getting dragged into it. Their names are getting dragged through the mud. We need to remember that because it's pathetic what sometimes what people will do in order to try to make up uh, some lies to help themselves. So Jennifer said it right. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Jennifer, I want to thank you uh, for coming on the show. I thank know you've you. been on the show probably about two years ago. Uh, it, it definitely was a while ago, but uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Any all A lot of your new folks that came into uh, to the chat tonight, I know there's a lot of people that are uh, from Boston, uh, people that have been following this case. Um, we, we try not to get sensational on this this show. We try to stay with the evidence. We start, try to stay with the truth. We try to keep it respectable. And uh, sometimes I can go off a little bit, but uh, you know we try to keep it respectable to everyone. So I want to thank all you folks, first time, second time coming into our chat, coming into our show. I want to appreciate you uh, uh, giving us your attention for an hour and 10 minutes. Uh, any last words, Mike? No, just uh, I just want everybody to uh, you know pay attention to what they uh, what's going to happen in the case and not succumb to you know these 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 crazy conspiracy theories. That's it. Absolutely, Jennifer. Final words. Just thank you for having me on, and um, you know just to shout out again to uh, the victims in this case, and and I really have confidence that the right outcome will occur. Absolutely. And to everyone out there, uh, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Feliz Navidad from Police Off the Cuff. Have a great night. Be safe. Good night. Thank you. One episode, just